Welcome to Lineouts by Earful of Dirt, bringing you conversations with rugby newsmakers about the greatest sport on the planet. We're live now. Um, uh, all right, Dan Moore, uh, captain, um, or outgoing captain now of the Toronto Arrows. Um, I guess congratulations are in order. I, I once told this to Peter Tiberio, like I told you on the phone. It's like first for him, like when he retired, but when he decided to come back, I was like, why didn't you tell me? And I'm like, dang it. Why did you? Because <laughs> I, I, <laughs> we had talked I, a little bit before the beginning of the season, um, just about different things. Actually, I think it was not a little bit before the beginning of the season. It was before the World Cup. The last time we had talked and, and uh, I was just like, dang it, um, no Dan Moore in the final roster. And uh, I, I don't know if I saw it coming um, in a sense, because like I, I watched Kingsley's selections and I mean, you're you're there. So you probably have an idea of what's going on. But uh, in a sense, it's hard to see the one of the on form like center wings not get a chance to to represent his country again. Yes, I know DT, you're you're competing against three really top players in DTH Vandermerve, uh, Jeff Hassler, who um, had to get a new um, tooth in here. You know, like uh, according to Brian Ray, he had already lost those teeth before, and I thought that was hilarious. That because he has like gotten um, a tooth replacement for that uh, in that game that he lost that tooth, but. Um, and also Taylor Paris, right? So, I mean, competition for you has been has been very difficult, but it's also tough for, I guess, on the MLR side and, and working in the league and just watching you guys develop to see guys not get that call when you guys are just tearing it up, um, right? So, and for a player, I I've never been in that kind of position. So I, but what was I mean? You're retiring now, um, but did that play into this, or did it, or was it just time to to get back and start slinging dollars on the stock market? <laughs> um, well, right out the gates with the hard hitting question, so that's good. I'm, I'm glad I was uh, you know up for a couple hours before this. Firstly, thanks so much for having me on. You know, I think that uh, that question. I mean, well, what ended up actually happening in sort of that position battle is I was sort of the fifth winger on the depth chart. One of the uh, Arrows wingers from last season, uh, Kainoa Lloyd, cracked a team. And, and, you know, I was pumped for him to get that opportunity to go over to the World Cup. Um, you know, it's always tough as a player to be on the outside of those uh, selection situations. Obviously, it was my sort of dream and, and personal Everest to make that um, World Cup team. Like, I, you know, I worked... I dreamed about it for 10 years. I really, really worked in earnest for five or six to try and make it. And it, it didn't pan out. Um, that's always really tough at the time. But, you know, when I reflect on it, I'm, I'm so proud of the effort I gave. I, I thought in the season, you know, in that MLR season leading up to the World Cup camp, uh, I couldn't have asked more of myself in terms of how I played. Uh, I showed up to camp, you know, was one of the the fittest in the backs group and, and you know, thought I'd been training well before. But you know, I think that's sports and that's how things, um, you know, come out for you sometimes. And, and I learned some amazing lessons in that. You know, as you mentioned, that group is a really strong uh, group of players like Tay Paris, DTH and, and Jeff Hassler. They all have incredible experience overseas playing in the in the top leagues in Europe. Um, and, and so, you know, I sort of 
I sort of understand some of the coaching uh, picks as well. Those guys are beasts and guys I've looked up to for a long time. And, you know, particularly uh, Tay and DTH have, have, you know, helped give me tips and tricks and insights over the course of my career, just having been on uh, on tour with them. So obviously disappointing, but, you know, you, you're always going to be disappointed as a player. And my family was, was, was very disappointed. But, um, you know, I look back now, it's just such a great learning experience to have the opportunity to even get capped for your country when, you know, when I was younger, that was, I was probably so far from that ever, have, ever happening. I think you just have to be thankful for the caps that you do get and the opportunities to pull on red and white. Like there's something I cherish for the rest of my life and, and, and probably the highlight of my rugby career. So let, let's go back um, quite a ways. So, so when did it all begin? This, this whole like egg shaped chasing ball. Did you do other things? Did, or are you from, I mean, I'm not some long line of rugby playing family person over here. I'm like the first person to know what rugby is in my entire family. So, and I think I've uh, done as much as I can to impress upon my family about, uh, let's, I don't, I don't think I have one that's like filled with air, but uh, here, here's a good one. Uh, a hardcore these that like the Mikasa balls. My mom got me one of these for Christmas. These things like maybe Mikasa needs to be a ball sponsor because these things are just durable as heck. Um, versus <laughs> versus an American football. So like, uh, what when did it when did it start for you? Well, I wasn't really introduced through family. I mean, my dad's actually British and my mom's Irish. I'm the first Canadian in my family. They moved over when my mom was seven months pregnant with me, but. There's not really a strong rugby pedigree. I think my dad got cut from like the under 14 B team, uh, you know, at his school in in England. Uh, There was some athleticism on the other side of the family. My mom's brother uh, played at the highest level of Gaelic football that you could in Ireland. Um, But no real early or family exposure to to rugby. To be honest, I grew up like every Canadian kid. Like I played hockey. That was my first love. I was obsessed with, with hockey growing up, but I also played soccer basketball i grew up in calgary close to the rockies so we used to ski um you know quite a bit as well i probably did everything cross-country running everything i just loved sports as a kid always had a ball in my hand i kind of got exposed to rugby when i was uh, probably 14 or 13 in a bigger way um and then you know as i was going off to university i was sort of more focused on soccer but at that point um, you know, the soccer culture, like we were sort of being instructed to dive for penalties. And, you know, I think I had less and less in common with the guys I was playing with. I mean, some guys were more concerned about their hair and how their jersey and shorts, um, you know, fit on before kickoff. And I was kind of like, I don't know if this is for me. And at the same time, I was starting to play more rugby and, and kicking on personally in terms of performance, but loving the guys and the culture around it. And, you know, I've had this fairly diverse experience in sports. There's been no culture in sport quite like rugby for me. And, um, you know, I'm so happy I made that decision because, you know, if you go the hockey route or you go one of these North American sports, you know, probably the most adventurous trips I would get is, you know, going West from Toronto to, to Hamilton that we call the hammer. And if you're not familiar with Hamilton, I mean, I think it has great merits. I won't speak ill of it, but, you know, compared to some of the other places that I've been able to go, I lived six months in New Zealand, you know, traveled through South America, been through all, all parts of Europe, uh, it's just such a global game and those opportunities would have been, wouldn't have been presented to me through hockey or, or really any North American sport. So uh, really thankful when I look back for, for those opportunities. So when did you figure out you were like not awful at the game? Cause obviously it's like, I can look back at myself in my career playing rugby. It was like, I was never going to be anything. 
but for I mean, you're in it, 17 caps for your country. When did you figure out that, you know, whether it was in college or in high school that you actually wanted to, to do a little bit more and try to, to get to the next level incrementally and incrementally. I mean, it, you, sometimes I, I try to ask this question all the time and, and I don't want guys to be humble about it because it doesn't really say much, but like when you figure out personally that you're kind of good at this one thing and it can lead to something and it has for you. So what, what was sort of that moment? I'm going to be honest. I don't actually know if there was any moment or this isn't isn't to say um like the moment you knew you made it because i think the best advice you ever get in sports or in music or anything is like never act like you made it right so i'm just wanting to know the moment where you you knew you were kind of good it's kind of interesting my path in rugby uh has never been very i don't think it was any it was ever clear to anyone that I would be able to do and experience some of the things I've been lucky to. Like when I was in high school, I was more athletic than the average guy that I was playing against. So you're able to rely on your athleticism to get around people, but it's not good for developing skill sets as a young rugby player. And that's why I always say, if young kids ask me for some advice, focus on skills. Like, you know, so many kids are just rely on their athleticism, you know, before the age of 18 to beat, beat people. And that's exciting. You'll score tries and, and, you know, you know, maybe get some personal satisfaction out of that should all be about skills, particularly at that age, because as the athletes get bigger and that pool of athletes gets bigger, um, you can't rely on athleticism. You know, the sort of next step in my career at university, I was actually on the fifth team at Queens university. We only ran five teams. So well, I that, started you ran five teams. That's more than I think the. If you look at in American University rugby, the most teams that you'll see is three. Like, so how many people were at the Queens in the Queens Club? A hundred. Uh, I think it was about one hundred and forty, and maybe it wow. scaled up to about one hundred and seventy by my last year. So when I was there, we started with five teams. I started on the fifth team. I think when I graduated, we, we were running seven teams. Wow, but, that's impressive. But that's why people get better in those environments because, you know, you got game time every week. Like, you know, the, the fifths were playing every week. Um, there was great coaching, unbelievable culture from the older guys there in terms of showing younger guys how to get better, how to do strength and conditioning, how to work on their skills. And, you know, guys that went on to play for, for Canada, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the name Alistair Clark, but he's a guy that was my hero when I was younger and really looked up to him. He got a few caps. Brian Ray mentioned his name on the LaRouge rugby podcast the other day. I was like, (laughs) who in the world is, I mean, he he was a guy that never got his fair shake. I think he's an unbelievable guy. One of the best players I played with. And it was kind of in the era where rugby Canada was like, you have to be living in Vic to get selected. And I think as a result, you know, we probably let some talent slip through the, the, the cracks because um, he was a guy that I, I think really had the potential to make an impact for us at the international level. I guess so five teams. You're, this sort of reminds me, I was talking to Tim O'Brien the, the earlier in the week um, about his players that were drafted in, in the first MLR draft. And the first player selected out of St. Mary's College was Derek Ellingson. And, you know, this kid was uh, – a guy that uh, I say kid, yeah, even though, you know, all everyone who's younger than me now, because all these guys coming in MLR are not our age. So 
it's like they're all kids. Um, but uh, Derek Ellingson, um, he was a high-level hockey player uh, growing up and just sort of, I guess, fell out of the development system because once you get to a certain point, you either basically have to go play major junior hockey in Canada or you, you just got to make a choice. And uh, he, he didn't make the choice to go play major junior hockey um, and then went against the hockey path in college down here and went to St. Mary's and, you know, he started on the third team and, you know, his second year, Tim O'Brien talked about like, well, played very well on the third team. And then, uh, you know, the second year it's like, well, what happens? Well, he sucked, but he was playing on the, on the, on the second team. Um, And then somehow, you know, we just kept, he just kept working and he became, you know, one of their top players uh, in the last two seasons and became a, a, a self-taught goal kicker that just kicked every single point they had the last two years. And it's just interesting to see when you guys like high level athletes come into this process and especially hardcore developmental systems where you have the, the ability to grow. And I think in that sense, Queens gave you the ability to grow if you're coming in and starting on the, on the fifth team, right? That's, that's intense. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I also think there's a lot of skill transfer um, from other sports and stuff just about being able to read the game and anticipate how plays unfold. Like, you know, it sounds like in that case, um, you know, hockey obviously played a role. You know, in my case previously, I think soccer and also like the kicking skill transfer um, definitely helped early on. Like I kicked goals at, at Queens and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the multi-sport background really does help you and also not get burnt out. Like I remember, you know, I was playing – hockey at you know serious level when I was younger like you know you're on the ice at like 7 a.m like four or five mornings a week and then you know you're playing after school probably three four on top of that like it was it was crazy they take it so seriously in this country and unfortunately I think a lot of athletes burn out but I mean in that model it's different than rugby because it's basically a pyramid the cream will rise to the, the top and the people who um you know just because there's such a big base of players in in Canada and rugby at least we don't have that um, sort of asset. So it's more like a, looks more like a rectangle and we have to invest in those people yeah. in a, in a hardcore way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can't speak more highly than, uh, about the Queens rugby program. It's an incredible program just culturally as well. And about how they actually, you know, the, the coach that was there when I was there was a guy called Pete Hugenboss. He was an analyst for rugby Canada at the time, you know, had great expertise about rugby and was probably doing some cutting edge stuff, working with Kieran Crowley, uh, for a university program. But I think he also led with like principles, like how do you become, you know, a better man and a better person. And a lot of those principles actually help you, I think, be a better athlete. I know that sounds kind of cheesy, but you know, you go back to sort of the elements of legacy that the all blacks talk about. And I think those principles are, you know, throughout their culture. And then as a result, you know, you have guys who don't take shortcuts. You have guys that are selfless guys that are willing to work hard for each other, be humble enough to learn from each other and, and get insights off each other. I think that's where you create these really special team environments where you allow individuals to grow by leaps and bounds. So how, like starting with the fifth team and then making it to the first team at Queens, like where did you, I mean, for you, what were the steps to just get better? And when did, you know, when did you settle in? Uh, to be honest, it was never like, you know, I, I had a, good first season was able to you know jump up a couple teams and then you know big first off season but it was never like a massive breakthrough it always felt sort of incremental to me at least like you know a really good off season in the weight room um just to be honest i don't think there's anything there's in my experience there's 
these and these these athletes exist even at the international level. Like all the guys that can play at the international level are one percent athletes or half half top percent athletes, right? Even within there, there's like the point zero zero one percent that are so like you know they have a mix of of hard work, but they are very very gifted as well. And like some things like natural born speed, like part of that is is natural. Like Usain Bolt is the fastest guy in the world. Yes, he works super hard. I'm not trying to take anything away from him, but even to be able to go that fast, there's something genetic there, right? And lots of data. I mean, if you read like the sports gene and stuff, it would all sort of support that. But, you know, that's that's only that 0.01% of athletes. The rest of the 99.999 or whatever it is, um, I think really have to graft every day and just get incremental improvements. And for me, I think the biggest things, it's, it's all just correlated to time put in. How many games of rugby can you play? So you see those different pictures in front of you and over time your decision-making gets better to really focused on, um, you know, skills. I think skills are the biggest thing. Thirdly is how do you actually use tools to enhance those top two things? So I think, you know, reviewing video as soon as you get into an environment where you have access to that is huge. And we had that at Queens. That was really helpful. And then being really purposeful with your practice. So when you're doing skill stuff, being really focused on what you're actually trying to do and drive outcomes and know the process. I think there's a lot of young players that just kind of pick the ball up and, you know, say they're doing skills, but they're not actually purposely thinking through the outcomes they're trying to drive and then you'll just be less efficient in in general and the reality is like we won't be able to get to a point where if unless you're having a ball in your hands from the age of three and there's lots of kids and there's good competition like you have in New Zealand we need to kind of have a different path in Canada and I think North America more broadly where you know when we get these athletes at like 10 or 12 years old trying to shortcut by like being really purposeful with our skill development while not trying to get the fun out of the game as well. There's like a, there's a balance, but um, you know, that's the, pre- that's the reason why you know, I was lucky enough to play against the Maori all blacks for Canada in 2017, I think. And, you know, they put 50 on us. The difference I don't think was really the athletic, the athleticism, although, you know, they probably had some bigger boys up front, but the decision-making and the skills they had was just like incredible. And they were all on the same page. Those boys are, those boys are big. I, uh, what was it? Uh, they, uh, fall of 18, we played the, the, I covered the game in Chicago and the U S played, uh, the Maori and it was, uh, and I, I forget, I think it was either, I forget who it was that was captaining them. And I'm, you know, we, I mean, we stood next to each other. I'm not the biggest dude in the, in the building, but like, I think party, party Parkinson comes in and, uh, He's just, uh, he's a mountain of a guy. And, uh, and I'm just like, okay, this is different. And <laughs> I, I, I asked, the, so here's a question because I, I watched New Zealand teams a lot. Was I, I don't, I don't know that game, but was, did they get a red card? Because they got a red card in the game we played. And it's just funny. I don't get it. They always play better with 14 on the pitch. Like straight uh- every New Zealand team I've ever watched, whether it was in super rugby or the all blacks or the black ferns or the Maori, they always play better with 14 on the pitch. So like, I I mean, I think it actually is harder for them to play with 15 guys. I, I I kid you not because we lost by like 30 uh, in 2019. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, uh, to be honest, I can't remember what happened when, when, uh, we got to go against them, but I think it feeds back into their mentality. Like, you know, even the, the Kiwis and our team sort of bring that when your backs are up against it, well, that's, that's the opportunity to prove what you're made of. And so I think so much of 
uh, good teams is like mindset and being able to shift mentally to just try and you know dig deep and, and get that extra little gear rather than let those things that are going against you, you know, put you in a bad state of mind. So when you when you left Queens, did you um, go directly to Oxford, or did you take a a break and you know try to make no, life happen? I uh, I actually went and worked for a, a private equity firm in downtown Toronto. And so, you know, I look back now and I, I don't actually know how I did it. It was one of those jobs where, you know, they sort of uh, uh, train you to the desk as the young, young grunt guy that's coming in. So I used to wake up at, at sort of like 6 a.m., uh, train for two hours before work, get in there for nine. You know, most nights I'd probably work, be working till sort of 10 or 11. At the time I had uh, like 10 or 11 at night, I'd have... I had two, uh, oh, no, amazing, only, only amazing. 10 or 11, only two hours of work. No. <laughs> I, I, uh, uh, you know, I had pretty amazing roommates there that, you know, I probably annoyed to a certain degree, but they would catch, uh, you know, 25 passes off each hand in this little sort of apartment hallway that we had in downtown <laughs> Toronto, just so I could get some touches in. Um, and, you know, I was lucky enough to be playing for Ontario and I sort of made a conscious choice at that point in time, like, you know, I was really just going to focus on work and rugby and every waking second that I had of free time was, was devoted to training or, or going to practices or playing games. So, um, you know, just kind of kicked on doing both and then was lucky enough to, uh, crack Canada while I was still working a desk job, which was interesting. I balanced that for a little bit and then had an opportunity to go professional with the national team. So I went out West to Victoria, played in the centralized system. And then I went overseas to, to, to Oxford. So, so, so you came through when did when did you move to Langford? Was this when um, Mark Anscombe had taken over the program, or so? Yeah, it was it was right at the beginning. They were just reinvesting into a central when Mark was coach. So, what would you? I mean, I guess for y- the young guys who are able to go do that, right? Where you're in a relatively professional environment and all you're doing is rugby. Do you think that? helped so did, how much of like club play versus just training did you get to do in that system i thought it was super beneficial was it perfect no i think was it claiming to be perfect probably not if i can reflect on my experience in new zealand i went and played in uh for the university of otago and Dunedin for six months and um, the great thing about playing there was that the Highlanders, their training facilities and their stadium was across the street from our training ground. So we, there was a guy who played a couple of years ago. His name's Kendrick Lynn, really amazing guy. He'd gotten injured the summer before um, in an all blacks camp. Like he was right there. He never got capped, but he was right there. Uh, and then the Highlanders were on tour in South Africa for about four weeks as he was trying to come back. And there's a great spirit of amateurism in New Zealand where, you know, they push their pro players into the amateur setup. And so for about four weeks, this, you know, Canadian kid who had no real idea of what, you know, high level rugby looked like, I got to play outside or inside Kendrick Lynn, depending on the week. Um, I learned so much from those two, three weeks. The other clubs weren't complaining about the competition level. They were, their attitude was like, bring it on. Like we want to play the best players we possibly can. And I don't think we should be trying to level playing fields in club rugby. I think we should be trying to get as many good players as possible you know, that program, I think, like, particularly when I was there, I thought it was amazing, particularly for younger players. And me at that time, I hadn't been in, you know, full-time high-performance environments. I thought it was great. Probably didn't get to play as many games as as I would have liked. But I, I played 
like I played week in week out with with CW. I just don't know if they're as high level as they could have been. Um, so you know, it, it wasn't perfect by any means. Wanderers. But I thought it was the Wanderers from Castle. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't perfect by any means, but I thought it was. I thought it was really great. And you know, part of the thing that program it was going through a transition where they redivided the sevens and the fifteens programs. Oh my gosh. And a lot of the fifteens opportunities had been given to sevens guys up to that point in time. And granted that was fair because they were potentially also the best rugby players and they could have those opportunities. But at the same time, they were the only people that were training full time in Canada. So all of a sudden you had like 12 guys that the program had invested in move from the fifteens to the sevens. And so you had younger guys coming in. And I think that period of transition was like, people didn't account for how difficult that would be. And so immediately you didn't see the return on it. But I think over time, you know, they've reinvested back into the Pacific pride program on the West coast. And I think over time, um, you know, particularly with the oversight of a guy like Jamie Cudmore, who I think the world of, um, you know, we're going to see some really good young Canadian talent come through. The centralized program tends to, it, especially recently has chafed the hide of more, more so like players who have been in the sevens program for a very long time. They're like, I guess based on just, this is just me reading and trying to figure things out. Like they've recombined the squads, they've reduced pay and it's all sorts of crazy stuff. And, and the reality is, is um, at least on the women's side, um, the benefit of just because of where women's rugby is in, in the world globally um, the benefit of having your sevens players available for your 15s team is very important um, because they are the best athletes on the team. Like, right. Like that is just this, the simplest way to put it. But I think in, for some reason I, but on the men's side, it, it seems that if you're not also playing 15s concurrently, which is a big ask, uh, I'll be honest. It, it's a big ask to say to your sevens players, um, if you if the team goes on tour, um, to be available for whatever club that they've been registered with and assigned to. Right? I, I think that is a big ask to to make of them, considering how much training you have to do just for sevens, and to yeah. be yet to be just to where you're in shape and skillful enough to be uh, available for selection for that tour stop. And then you don't get picked. You then have to, you know, just switch the mindset of like what you're doing in, in from sevens to fifteens the next week to play a match. And then if, you know, things change and like the way Vegas or Vancouver, uh, I guess Vancouver, Vegas and Vancouver were being back to back say, you know, Hey, you're not selected for Vegas. Um, you, but, uh, and you have to play this weekend for the rowing club as it were for, you know, and uh, so they go play for the rowing club. They could pick up a niggle or they could get a major injury or someone gets a major injury in Vegas. And then you're back training on Monday and you have to be ready to train for sevens. And I, I think it's a, I think it's overall a big ask, but I, with, I think for the Canadian women and the U S women, the amount of tests that we get are so fleeting at times that having your sevens pool available is very important. Whereas in 15s for the moment, we're getting regular competition, right? So it's, it's a little bit different. And the asks 
of your of your players are also different because of that. But so get capped with Anscombe. What was what was that like? Because I've watched a lot of his sort of, or I guess he didn't make too many, but he made some interesting speeches um, at uh, annual general meetings for Canada, talking about needing investment. Um, I, part of it was paying you guys more, and then the other part was making you having you play more. And a lot of people were. I, I remember him che- being cheered on. He's like, "Hey, Rugby Canada, you need to give us more money." <laughs> and uh, but what was? I mean, what was he like as a coach? Because I remember uh, in my experience from watching on the outside in, and then also as a journalist, like it didn't seem like a great time, at least record wise. I, I don't know from on the player side, what, um, what was your experience? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I don't actually know the, the incident that you're uh, referring to in terms of what Mark said, but, um, you know, I learned a lot from Mark Anscombe, um, coming into that environment. I thought there was elements of his coaching, like tactically and strategically. I thought he really understood the game. Uh, I also probably have a bias because he he liked me and and gave me opportunities um, that uh, you know I really appreciated. So you know definitely have a, a bias there. I mean I think the one AGM where he did co- like sort of reference what was happening in in Canada, I think was was probably true. Like we're not playing enough rugby and at a high enough level now. Where where I think you know and I find this frustrating as a player and, and particularly in my time as a, as a centralized athlete, I think too many of the players are not appreciative of the opportunity that we're actually giving in that centralized environment. Like the financial sustainability of rugby Canada in terms of events and stuff, in terms of generating revenue and generating profit, there's a complete disconnect. I think about understanding what those events actually drive and then how players get supported like the reality is, is if, if you're bringing a couple thousand people, like I think last summer they got 7,000 people to Hamilton to play Leinster, which is one of the biggest clubs in the world. You're like, you can't break even on those kind of events yeah. and you can't support like lavish lifestyles. So I think there's really this big disconnect between what players are expecting and, and what, like what, what really the organization can support. Like my view, you know, I was just, so thrilled to be able to play a sport and be given an opportunity to train full time. Are you making lavish dollars? I would say no. Um, but are you as an amazing experience where you get to see the world on someone else's dime, you get to compete and do something that you love every day. Definitely. Now the sevens thing is a little bit different because the Vancouver sevens event has been generally generating a lot of money. So I think that my comment there is, is sort of aside from, from that yeah. whole aspect, which I can't claim to understand well enough. Um, but no, I, I mean, b- back to, I guess, your question, you know, I learned a lot under Mark. Um, the record was maybe not amazing, but was the record, like, you know, one thing I would sort of say, we, when I got capped against Russia, we, we played them in Calgary. We beat them, I think, 52 to 12 or 17, and, and you know, happy free to fact check me here. Two years ago, or, or two years later, or three years later, we played them again. Mark was gone. And, and lost. we lost to Russia 41-10. Now, just quantitatively and using data, you're telling me that there's a like 60 or 70 point swing in two or three years? Like that can't be, it's not like the player has fell out, you know, like like there's something going on there that's not leading to 
results. And, and that's, I'm cherry picking one probably extreme data point, but I think there's a number of those situations. Um, and I mean, and first and foremost, I think as players, we have to step up and take responsibility for that. Like those are really poor performances and I can't explain it. You know, I'll put my hand up. I was on one team where we lost to Brazil and that was, that was the first time we'd ever lost to Brazil. That was like heartbreaking. And, for, and heartbreaking. Was that the first ARC? Because we lost to Brazil too. I, no, I, no, it was, it was the second one. The first, it was the I mean, second one. I was like, so, because it's interesting that there have been a lot of opinions about Mark Anscombe during that period of time, because I think he demand or he attempted to demand more resources, not diverted from sevens, but just more resources to support what, they were telling him to do. And that AGM I thought was, you know, when, when your coach is saying, Hey, we need, I don't know how you're going to give me more money, but I need more money to do this. We need to get our players playing more high level rugby. And with the way things are going, we need to get them overseas. That saying that the, the way the, the league structure worked in BC is that sort of to, as a way of competitive equity, his play centralized players were not playing enough rugby is was seemed to be his opinion. And I could, I could agree with that. I think this is where maybe rugby Canada needed to influence and tell sort of BC what things were going, whether that's saying, Hey, this carded rule makes no sense. Or telling players, I know you've been with that club your entire life, but you're a part of the centralized program and you're going to be assigned to a new club because you need to play more rugby. And that's what happens in New Zealand is that players have are registered at four levels, right? If they're an all black, if they're a super rugby player and they're not an all black, they're registered at three levels, a club, um, a province, and then a super rugby Um team right so if and it's sort of like the minors in baseball or in hockey that if a player's injured and um they're just healthy and they need to come back they they start at the bottom they do their rehab starts and they come back up like you said um when you were playing club rugby in new zealand and you get this this chance to play with an all black or this chance to play with a top end super rugby player and it's not really something you see here in the States or I'm guessing in, in Canada that much. And you definitely, and I, it doesn't happen in, in the UK. Like those guys don't like go down to clubs because of the way the league structure is, because it's all about promotion and relegation. Whereas I think for rugby, I think rugby has a sustainability problem outside of the United States. And in, in some sense, maybe in the Southern hemisphere, whereas, uh, a holistic league structure like we will eventually have as MLR grows and there will be clubs that feed into the MLR or there may even be a minor league at some point, but we are, we're heading into our fourth season. So we don't know what, what the future will hold, but we know that MLR will exist for, um, for a future at this point. And Whereas if you have a multi-tiered development system where you can send players down and bring players up, it is significantly easier, I think, to develop players. And, and that's what, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, one of the things that the draft got a criticism on was um, pathway. Like 
players being able to choose their pathway or academies and saying, and the American way and the collegiate system. I was like, well, if you look other than football and basketball, so if you look at hockey specifically, if you look at soccer specifically, and if you look at baseball, they all basically have an academy system. We just call it the minors. Like that's the, we just call it the minors. We don't call yeah. it an academy. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, it was just interesting because I, I think I was talking to a few of the guys. I, I think that players actually liked playing for Anscom. He just had a very, uh, not tumult, tumultuous is a bad word, but um, a, a public persona that didn't really, I think, work well with those above him. But it seemed like it was also at a time that Rugby Canada was going through a lot of issues. And I mean, both USA Rugby and Rugby Canada are still going through a lot of issues. So it's really hard to to say are are either of us on the right path it was interesting to be like well the difference between the u.s and and canada is that we're winning and they're losing and now it's like the difference between canada and the u.s is we're bankrupt and they're not (laughs) so you know it's 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 an interesting way to look at it um so you when did you make the decision to go to oxford to get your master's uh, to be honest, it would have been a dream to go there for a long while before that. I knew it had a great, great rugby program. Um, and, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to actually see that, that dream come, come through. If, if I could just, just jump back to that one point, I just have sort of two or three comments. Oh, yeah. I thought, I think one, like, you know, that rule, I don't think that rule was like the downfall of everything. I think, you know, there's a blame to sort of be passed around. I think two, uh, in Toronto with, with Bill Webb and, and with Mark Winokur, they're actually, they were releasing our players to play in the local club system last year. And I thought that was great for the level of play, you know, in the uh, McCormick cup final last year, you had Brantford uh, facing off against Markham Irish. And, you know, we had Johnny Sheridan and Will Kelly, two of our players facing off in the tens jerseys. And you had uh, arrows littered on the, uh, on the, the Brantford side. I thought that was great. So I think, you know, that sort of attitude is to it is, is what we need. And Bill and Mark are taking a risk because the players are, are potentially going to get injured, but, and their investment get injured. But I think they understand the like broader um, importance and, and significance. Um, but, you know, back, I guess, back to your, back to your point, you know, Oxford, yeah, it was always a historic rugby program. And when you go, you really do get to experience it. You know, I think there's been 150 plus years of the varsity match about three weeks before the varsity matches when we played Cambridge, um, you know, our, our trivals at Twickenham, you actually play a season of about, you know, I probably over the course of the year, probably played close to 30 games or 25 games with Oxford, but the season is really one game and it doesn't matter what your record is in the games before and after that's the only one that matters. And success is hundred percent based on, on that outcome. Unfortunately, I was on the losing end of one, but you know, you see the tradition and the history behind it a couple of weeks before in our last tune-up, you get sort of four or 5,000 old boys come back, watch in the stands. They have a dinner after, um, you know, recount on their sort of own uh, tales and, and battles and stuff in, in the blue jersey. And then, you know, on the actual day, being able to play in what I think is the mecca of rugby in the Northern, Northern Hemisphere, Twickenham, and, and walk into the locker room where, you know, Johnny Wilkinson and all these greats played and, and applied their tra- trade was incredible experience. Trying to think when you were at Oxford, was that when Connor Kearns was at Oxford? Yeah, yeah, Connor was my captain. So, what was, I mean, Connor hasn't broken into 
the Eagles, but he has, uh, you know, broken into the USA selects. Uh, and it's, I know he wasn't, um, he didn't go back to the Legion this year, but he's, he's always been a player to look at um, and wonder like what's next for him. And it's kind of sad to not see him play this year because I think last year he was forced into, uh, with the way just injuries happen, it was interesting to see who was playing on the wing every week for San Diego. And you had, <laughs> you had a fly half uh, and a scrum half playing wing. And I think uh, Nick Boyer looks more like a number six than he looks like a, a wing, but uh, it's kind of, you know, like what, what was that experience like playing with him? I mean, and I, they tell me, I mean, everyone talks about Oxford be like, well, it's like, Oxford and Cambridge, the guys who get to go um, over there from the States or from Canada and play for those clubs, get a, a unique experience because you have, um, you know, premiership guys who have just stepped away from the professional game to go back to school. Like what is just, I mean, not the amateurism of it, but just the, the rugby experience when you get to basically go into a, a team that is full of professional players that are, you know, just going to school um, to take a break. Yeah. I mean, coming from Canada, it was incredible. I mean, firstly, Connor Kearns, I can't speak more highly of that guy. I think the world of him, he was such a good captain, such a great guy helping me sort of, you know, adjust to life over there. Uh, Cause I didn't know anyone in England, in, uh, in Oxford specifically before I went, you know, and uh, he was amazing to me. I think he's a great leader. Um, and I, I wish he had gotten, you know, more opportunities in that U.S. setup because I think he could have contributed to that program. Um, you know, when he went down with the USA selects at the APC, I thought he played great and he was captaining the squad. Um, and I know him as a guy. I think he's the kind of guy you want in your locker room and, and uh, you know, really thoughtful, really smart. Um, I just love him as a dude. So I, I think, you know, it's too bad he didn't get a bit more runway. I think last I spoke to him, I think he was either applying or he had got into med school. So he's a super oh, wow. sharp guy. I, mean, I know he's. I know he's. I don't a think nerd. we need to sit here and worry about him. Or, or I know he's a nerd, that. but uh, you know, like uh, you, you guys, they get to go to Oxford. You know, I know you're all smart. So it was just interesting because I wanted because I was like I could have sworn you had an intersecting path with a, an American there, and yeah. I wasn't sure if it was him. But that's good to. Yeah, it was. Good I mean, American with a, an Irish accent. Connor's a great guy. I, I just wish, like, like you said, he he had. Uh, a bit more runway with the U S setup. And, you know, if he's going to med school, then, you know, he, he's, he can go play some club rugby uh, later on just to get his uh, itch on, but he'll be fine. And, yeah. Uh, you know, he'll save lives. And, uh, and I th you know, he'd be the kind of guy I would, would trust with uh, my life in his hands. But I, I think to your question for coming over as a Canadian, you know, there was, I think two guys in our squad that had over 125 uh, caps in the premiership. There was a guy who had played England sevens and was like, you know, I think he was a stud for them. Um, you know, he had played in uh, Sam Edgerly. He's an amazing guy as well. You know, he'd played um, in the, in the championship with, with Donny, with Doncaster for a while. I think he'd been on the bench of a London Irish game and he was younger. So, you know, guys who had been around the, the uh, highest level you can possibly play over there for a while. We had a, you know, I think like a handful of guys out of the squad that I played either went on to, uh, play for a professional team the following year or, you know, a year or two removed from my season, went and played. Um, there's some amazing guys, Will Wilson, Tom Stileman, um, Charlie Posniak, like those names might not mean much to you, but, you know, 
people who follow the game over in England would, would know that those are sort of young and upcoming players and, and really talented guys. So to be in that kind of environment, I mean, I learned so much. One great part of the experience is, is that you get this real diversity of skill levels. So as I mentioned, you have these premiership players that you have 125 caps, but then you also have these like young first year guys where maybe you have a position where there's not as much depth and they're kind of cracking in at 18, 19. And, and, and granted, they're probably coming from like a professional academy system. So it's not like they're that green, but to have that sort of diversity of experience and sort of difference in the squad and, and sort of life cycle of, of, of uh, you know, these guys as people, you, know, you have these older grad students and these young undergrads. It's honestly such a fun mix. Um, and plus I learned as much probably from, from both ends of that spectrum. I think one amazing thing about my experience there is I, I look back on it is every night after training, we would have a meal together in like this little pavilion area. And, you know, you just come off a training session and particularly the first couple ones, you know, I saw this guy, you know, run head first and just put his head in the spokes of some guy running full speed down the sideline. You're like, God, oh, that's like, guy's a crazy man. So, you know, at that end of the practice, I'm sitting across from, from dinner and you're sort of saying like, oh, so like, you know, what brings you to Oxford? What are you doing? And it turns out, you know, he's on like the leading edge of, you know, trying to solve Alzheimer's or you know, there was another guy that was in the, the squad. He wasn't in the first team, but he was literally like Matt Damon from the Martian. Like his PhD was around, how can you grow things on Mars? <laughs> so you know, amazing rugby players and great talented people. And, you know, they had that premiership. Some of them had that present premiership caliber, but then also people that off the pitch are doing really interesting things, working on really interesting problems. And I think that was like the most enriching component of the experience. So you finish up at Oxford or in the varsity blue, but you don't come back. You uh, go up to Yorkshire uh, and, or I guess go up to Leeds and, and play for Yorkshire Carnegie sort of really at a tumultuous time. Um, like in the last like four or five years has been very tumultuous with uh, the, I guess now Leeds, they're going to be Leeds, um, Yorkshire Carnegie and, you know, now the they're in national. They've been relegated to National One and all sorts of hunyat. And obviously, you weren't there when this was going on, but you were there during, I guess, maybe the beginnings of this period, or I guess maybe the middle. Yeah, maybe the middle of it. So, were they was was Yorkshire Carnegie still a full time championship club when you were there, or were they on a part time training basis? No, no, it was so. So actually, so actually, what happened at the end of Oxford? I actually went and had a cup of coffee at Wasps. I went and trained with their first oh, nice. team for about three months. I had three caps with the Wasps A squad and and had a full trial, and I loved that because I really got to rub shoulders with all these dudes that I looked up to. Like you know, at the time, Wasps had James Haskell, Danny Cipriani, Elliot Daly, oh, Willie Larue. You know, saw him hoisting the the World Cup just last yeah, September. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was incredible to play that with was... those people. Even though it was only a three month stint for me, and I was mostly just a training player against those top guys, I learned so much. That was incredible. That was such a good uh, at the time. Like that was such a good team. Um, oh, like, when it, it comes to players like, who were on the team. Yeah. And the wing talent was, was amazing. I mean, you see Marcus Watson now, um, but, but, you know, I didn't, didn't sign there. Uh, I got an offer to play in the championship for Yorkshire Carnegie in the North of England, which if you've ever been up there, if you've ever been to Leeds is a you know interesting experience in it's, its own right. I loved it. The people were so friendly, really beautiful part of the world up in Yorkshire Dales and stuff, but uh, a different town, you know, certain parts of it definitely have an edge and appreciate getting to know that side of English culture 
Um, you know, it, our squad, what had happened at the time was they brought in a director of rugby who had come from the hurricane system in England, in uh, New Zealand, unbelievable coach and, and DOR. I thought he was great. But at the time the club, the story was, or the narrative we were being told was the club was willing to invest heavily to try and make a run at the premiership. If you actually look in England, the highest number of players that come from that, that, that go on to represent England actually come from Yorkshire, but there wow. is no premiership club in Yorkshire yeah. and Leeds is a big city. I think it's the third or fourth biggest city in the UK. So the idea was, you know, there should be a premiership club here, even though it's in the middle of like rugby league country in the North. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. So if you look at, uh, I guess there are 14 um, RFU academies and one of those has been, I'm guessing it's not going to be, I'm guessing the license or whatever is going to be, might be revoked, but there are 14 designated RFU academies, even though there are more than, you know, 14 um, clubs, I guess, with academies, right? So there's 13 clubs in the PRL, but uh, you sort of need, they have the 14th RFU Academy designation, or they did. I, I don't know if that's changed, but I'm guessing it could since, you know, they're now in national one and not in the championship, but it like they, they were in the, I think they were in the premiership in like Oh six. Um, and then they got the way the, this is nerding it out. The way the regulations work for the premiership is like Exeter came up. Um, Yorkshire went down and once you're out for three years, um, and if a, once you're out for three years and if a club that is in the premiership doesn't have the um, shareholder rights uh, within the PRL, they have the, um, the rights to purchase your shareholder rights and Yorkshire wasn't coming up anytime soon. So in exit, so Exeter's, I guess, shareholder rights originally were in Yorkshire's uh, a, a decade and a half ago at this point, but it's interesting. That's just, knowledge you have there. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, you're telling me about players that you're, you've played with that I would say if MLR didn't exist, I'd probably know them because when it comes to MLR, you know, I scout you guys. It's like 300 players a week now where I have to know your names and ins and outs. And I'm just like, Ugh. <laughs> you know, it's like, so I, I, I so, during the season, I tune, I tend to tune everything out. Um, and it's just MLR because it's just, it's hard enough trying to figure like what I think there was during the first season of MLR. So not, not last season, but during the first season of MLR, I still watched the prem um, in that, in the spring. And so I would watch six MLR, three MLR games a week. And then I would watch like all of the prem games which oh, is wow. insane. So I would watch yeah. nine rugby games during a weekend and my girlfriend would just destroy me because I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to watch 18 hours of rugby. I think, I think she was in the right there. And to be honest. <laughs> she, yeah, she is. <laughs> she is. She's awesome. But um, yeah, I, so you go up there, you get to train full time. What was that season like? Cause you do end up coming back to Toronto, but what was, you know, just, you said you loved it, but what were the, I guess the ins and outs of just trying to get this club up to the prem? Did you, did you get the idea that it was going to happen or did you figure yeah. out that you needed to leave? Because I'm guessing no, you figured out that you needed to leave. 
I was really stoked on the opportunity because I thought um, I thought we had a chance. Like, the, I mean, I thought we were making a run at the premiership. And I think everybody in the club believed that. And, and I think it was true. Like, what happened was the DR came in and, and started bringing over these New Zealand players where he had, you know, connections into that talent pool. And there were some incredible uh, players that came over. I don't know if you're familiar with a guy called Antonio Kirikiri, but he had been playing for the Blues in New Zealand and was an unreal talent. Um, and we had some really great players. I think, unfortunately, uh, we had a couple key guys get injured in the preseason. And then what happened was we were missing them for our first couple games. We started to go on a bit of a slide early on. And, you know, as a result, then we brought over these Kiwi players on fairly big contracts to make a run at the premiership. And I think, you know, our record was not good at that point. And the investor that was, you know, had sort of planned to, to back it all pulled out when he saw what was happening with his investment in the stands, in the standings of the league. But, you know, from my perspective, sort of selfishly and personally, I, I actually got to start like all the league games that I was there and it was amazing. Like I loved being able to play at that level, train at that level, play with those guys. Like I learned so much and to play in some really cool stadiums uh, and really be like fully immersed in the culture of, of rugby. And yeah, there's some positives and there's some interesting negatives. Like, you know, you make, make a bad play in a game that people are not, not shy to tell you in the, uh, the beer up after and stuff. But I love that people were so passionate about it. Um, but for me then, you know, I missed out on the, uh, November, missed out on the November tour. Um, and I was the only Canadian pro to, that was playing professionally overseas to miss out on that tour. And so, you know, things weren't really adding up when I thought amateurs were getting selected over me. Um, and so, you know, I had a conversation with Kingsley Jones about what would be the best chance to, to get into the World Cup team because we were about a year away from the World Cup. And so based on those conversations and what he had sort of said was that if I came home and, and played for the Arrows, um, you know, I could be a part of helping build something in Toronto, which meant a ton to me as my hometown. Um, but also I would be in the shop window in terms of playing with guys that were probably going to the World Cup. And he, he would probably see me week to week and that would increase my chances. Um, so that was sort of, to be honest, that was why I made that decision. Like I just wanted the, you know, as I said earlier, the world cup was my Everest. It was everything I was trying to go for at that point in time. And so, you know, if, if Kingsley told me to jump, the only thing I would say is, is how high, you know? So, um, he told me to come home and, and that's what I did. Well, it beats, uh, if you had stayed and played with Yorkshire last year when, um, you know, checks stopped clearing and insurance wasn't paid. And yeah, like that was some crazy stuff. Just yeah. Like I don't know the ins and outs of it, but I feel for the guys. I mean, I know the rest of the season, my season, I think towards the tail end, they guys weren't getting paid and stuff. And I think it was probably tough, but they came together and they, they actually took some really great scalps at the end of that season. So, um, there were some awesome guys in that team. It doesn't surprise me that, you know, when their backs were up against the wall, they got some big wins and, and sort of went on a little bit of a run at the end of the season, I think. So Kingsley says, play, play for the arrows. When do you talk to, when do you talk to Mark about coming over? I think the previous summer, like when I was looking at Wasp and looking at the championship, I'd already had a, a couple conversations with Mark and with Bill Webb. And then, you know, when I had that conversation, my first call was to, to Bill and Mark. And you know, I was so appreciative of the opportunity. This, it's hard to know when you're going into that startup sort of experience. Like we were a startup professional sports franchise, what it'll really be like. I mean, playing for the air, 
you know, probably the most enriching or one of the most enriching rugby experiences I've had. And, and actually in my life more broadly, like I absolutely love it. I feel so indebted to the opportunities that Bill and Mark gave me. It was amazing. Like it was just simply amazing. So I uh, was lucky enough to work out uh, an agreement to come home with, with Mark and um, you know, dove into that uh, environment. And I was happy for that time in England because I think both my professional experience and my experience at Oxford helped me, um, you know, I think bring some some sort of discipline into the environment, particularly because you had a, a fairly sizable portion of our teams being pro players for the first time. And there had to be, you know, standard setting. And, and I think it was really important to have guys like Aaron Carpenter and Pete Smith on the coaching staff who'd seen professional rugby before and bringing those elements. But also it was important to have players that knew how to train day in day out because that is a grind and if you're young and not used to it it's really hard to hold yourself to those standards i think you know one thing about pro sports like a lot of the stuff is so tedious like the games are incredible the training is incredible but like to really be good you have to find a way to be really engaged with like going to bed early eating well doing doing in your tub and doing epsom salt bath rolling like all these things that actually enable you to perform at the end of the day are a bit tedious. That's one so of the things, you have to find a way to fall in love with them. That's one of the things that annoys me about club rugby is like when I was in the army and playing club and even after when I left the army and was playing club, it's like, you know, if it's like the one thing, at least in the U S that I liked is that we didn't play all year. Um, I think playing all year is annoying. Um, and in when I lived in Texas, we played all year. Uh, because we we didn't play all year, but it, it just worked out that way because at a certain part of the year, it is just too hot. So we played half a yeah. season in the fall. We had a winter break, and then we played the other season, half of the season in the spring, and then there's sevens, and I don't play sevens because sevens is work. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it annoyed me when I played club is like how much the, the drinking culture um, is in the game during the week. Um, that guys just, we just, you know, okay, we had practice. Let's go get drunk, you know, on a Tuesday night. I'm like, what are we doing? Like, I can't, I, like, I got to drive an hour because at the time, like club, my club was on the other side of the city. And uh, I was like, I got to drive an hour, you know, go home so I can get back to work the next day. And I was like, no. And it's just, it's, you know, I, I think it like some of the lower end of the amateur side, people don't take care of their bodies during the season. I'm all about like the socials and the drinking culture that is like sort of traditional, but I think at a certain level of amateur rugby, there is a bit too much emphasis on the drinking culture and rugby, not just taking care of yourself. Cause if you're going to play this sport, then I think we got to take care of ourselves just because to be able to deal with hits day in and day out, it's important. So at the professional level, you get that focus. I think that's important um, because it, it says this. And I think, you know, the arrows have done a great job. Uh, you know, you, you got that you came in and you, you earned those captain's wings. Right. But uh, so let's talk about Chris Silverthorne. I've had a few conversations with him and I've had a few conversations with, with Mark and, and how they built this up. I mean, they had sort of a long runway with the, the Ontario arrows sort of piece um, going into this. And then when you, when you guys knew that you were going to be an MLR, you know, how did you, how did Chris prepare you? Cause I, I remember talking to Mark, um, you know, we didn't know. It was like, we knew that it was going to happen, but we didn't get the confirmation until like 
right before Christmas. So they had like two months, you had like two months lead in to get ready. And then you guys were going to be on the road for eight weeks. So what do you talk, how did Chris Silverthorne coach you guys and get you guys prepared for the endeavor that you had to undertake to, I mean, I think you guys were five and three when you came home um, to Toronto, which is um, pretty awesome. To like, I think we were, we were four and four. Four and four. So like any, any other way, like splitting, you know, we just want to be 500 until we get home. And that's a, I mean, that's a, an intense proposition to, to ask of a team that's going to be on the road for eight weeks. Um, how did, how did he prepare you guys for, for the season knowing that was the strategy for your campaign? Yeah, for sure. And actually, if I could just quickly pick up on two things you said previously, I totally agree with the amateur rugby thing. I think the most horrific injuries I've seen in rugby is at the amateur or like the high school level because the people aren't doing the work on their bodies and recovering to actually take those impacts. And secondly, I totally agree as well. I think the fact that the MLR is is only six months is great for players. Uh, you know, Yorkshire was a 12-month program or more or less, like 11 months, 10 and a half maybe. I don't understand uh, how they do that. Like, I don't um, know how, yeah, but the players, they don't get a chance to develop anything. So you, you end up, ha- or any skills outside of rugby. So you end up having, you know, guys who are in their late twenties, early thirties, looking to transition out of rugby. Yeah. And because of the academy system, they've been in that since 14, 15, 16 yeah. years old. They haven't thought about anything. And these guys yeah. are not teed up for success after. And so I really like the MLR model where you can go, you know, there's a big off season and players have to take the onus on them. They have no excuse to develop in, in other skills. You know, transitioning to, to Chris Silverthorne. I mean, I speak, to, I think the world of Chris, he coached me as I was coming through the ranks with the Ontario blues growing up as well. So, um, you know, we have a very close working relationship and have the last couple of years, um, you know, with his leadership, he told us, I think so much is just how you look at, at things. And particularly for our first two months on the road, the way that we looked at as a, as a team and, and how Chris sort of instructed us to look at it is as an opportunity. Like it was an opportunity for us to go on the road and, and get closer in the hotel rooms um, and bond more on the road. Like there's no secret that you're spending way more time together than when you're back home. And particularly in our setup, you know, some people are driving an hour into training and stuff. So it's hard to go for dinner. It's hard to like have that social time in Toronto because it's such a big sort of urban um, you know, landscape. It's hard to navigate. Um, so I think that was our attitude. I know Chris, I've heard that line from Chris that he was going to be happy if we went 500. I know none of the players were happy. We went 500. We wanted to do more, but, um, luckily last year we were able to, you know, come home and sort of build that fortress at home that we had been talking about with a really passionate fan base and rip off, you know, seven wins in a row to end the season. It was, it was magical. And we built an incredible amount of confidence and belief in ourselves over that time. And that was where we got the results from. So, um, yeah, it was cool how things, you know, shook out. We would have obviously wanted to get a W one or two more in that first half. Uh, but, you know, I think we learned this year, like we were, we were four and one on the road. Um, so it was trending in the right way. Yeah. It's, you know, like watching what you guys did last year was, was very impressive. And then, you know, just being able to come into Seattle, uh, and, and play that game, you know, I tend not to, you know, people ask me who who do you who who, are, who do you root for? Well, 
I don't really root for anyone uh, in this business. Yes, I got some kit back there. If you want, if you want to tell, uh, <laughs> if you want to tell Brock to send me some merch, you know, I can. Uh, we can put it in the studio, and you know, I'm, I'm pretty cheap. I just need a, <laughs> just need a, a, a beanie, um, a scarf, and a and a jersey. And it'll go in the studio. You'll get that sports karma for the arrows, you know. I'm not, okay. I don't need uh, I don't need cash bribes. Like uh, just uh, just give me some kit, <laughs> and we'll pull this off. Okay. I, I just you know, and so you guys end up coming in to um, Seattle, and that game ends up being. I, I I mean, how intense? Like like when you guys were, it was you know do or die you know, we need to win this game. And I, I know you guys end up losing, but in a sense that it was just some things here, some things there. Obviously this season you had worked on that and you'd added talent um, to, I guess, avenge that campaign. But what was your sense going into that game about how, like, how did you guys feel? This is into the semi last year? Into the semi last year, yeah. Yeah, we were ready to go. I mean, we had great momentum. We'd won seven games in a row. We were feeling confident. We flew out there a day early and, um, you know, our bodies were completely adjusted to the West Coast. There was no excuses from a performance standpoint. I thought we were so ready. Um, and I think that our team was was ready. But the tough thing about sports is on the day, some things, you know, go against you. You know, sometimes you can get a lucky bounce. Sometimes the other team can get a lucky bounce. And, you know, credit to Seattle in the first half, they came out on fire and, and showed that experience. And, and that was probably, you know, one of the better halves of rugby they'd played all last season. Um, and we were on the back foot a little bit, you know, it is a hostile environment to play there. You know, when Seattle gets into your 22 and they start getting on you with that seawall chant, it definitely builds excitement in their players. Um, and so, you know, it was, a, it was a good battle. I think if, when I look back at that game, there was a couple bounces that could have gone the other way and we would have been the victors. There was definitely, you know, a try that was called back and, and potentially rightfully so, but, um, you know, that would have been a momentum shifter, I think for sure. Um, so, you know, but I think we look back on that season and you know, I was really proud of, you know, although none of us were happy with the effort or the outcome, sorry, we were very happy with the effort. And, um, you know, we had a group that really played for each other um, put their hearts out there and, and as you know as a fellow player and as a, as a captain of your team you, you can't really ask for more so we end up talking pnc roster comes out and the world cup roster comes out and i'm like no dan Moore. like what the heck's going on and uh you're just like yeah you know what what you gonna do um you know bust my butt um put myself in the best position possible to get the call don't and you just, you know, I guess you uh, take your take your boots off, go down to Balmy Beach. We didn't talk. We haven't talked about Balmy Beach at all. I'm like I, I should have said. I should have said, tell me about Balmy Beach. But we'll get into that a little bit. But um, so, you know, where where where's your head at after that? And like, what what was your next step um, to get ready for this season, knowing that you didn't get that chance? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I sort of referenced a couple times before, like that was my big dream. So when that, you know, when you're told that that's not going to happen, it's obviously like crushing at first. But I think the amazing thing about sports is is the lessons it provides and and how you can, um, you know, learn and, and develop those sort of intangible skills. I think one big thing that sports has taught me is 
you know, when you got knocked down on the mat, how do you get up from it? How do you, you know, show that resiliency and that determination to keep going? I didn't want that to be the end of my career. And I loved the team and, and the culture and everything we have going with the arrows. So, um, you know, I was excited to get back with the boys this year and, and start training. You know, I thought we had a team that could win a championship and, and the goal was, was to go do that this year. So, um, yeah, I, I thought we showed stuff early in the season that could indicate we definitely had a, a chance and an opportunity. I mean, I, I backed my squad in, in that competition. Um, unfortunately didn't get to play out obviously with the with what's going on in the world right now, but, yeah. um, you know, when we look back, uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of people who are in you know, much tougher positions as a result of, of COVID and this pandemic. Um, so I think we got to be grateful for those opportunities that we did have, and then be really thankful that this, the league's coming back next year. And, and, um, you know, I'm going to be excited to stand on the sidelines and watch those boys, uh, you know, win that title next year. I think the arrows have a really good team coming back and, um, it'll be, it'll be cool to see them, uh, take it down. Yeah. I, I look forward to seeing what the arrows do in, um, they're already making Making moves. Sam Malcolm decides to sign a long-term deal in in uh, in Japan, and then one cruise signs up to to come north from Argentina. And I'm like, geez, just re- tell like pull Dan Moore out of retirement. I bet they'll. It, it happened to Tiberio. I bet it'll happen to you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I guess so. What what's next for you, man? Like, what is I mean, obviously, I'm getting you on this press retirement circuit, like making sure this part happens. But um, <laughs> are you? I mean, you worked for the Arrows on on the backside a little bit um, this year. So, are you going to go into the coaching setup? Or are you going back to being? Uh, are you gonna do a no? Have you seen Ballers? Uh, yeah with the rock i have so are you gonna are you gonna be the rugby spencer strasmore (laughs) player agent i don't think so player player agents money man extraordinaire are you just are you going back to toronto hedge fund life or what what's the next thing yeah no i'm uh so i mean i'm uh, i'm gonna be like I i have professional aspirations that are that are completely different from rugby i've loved rugby and it's been like a passion a love um but you know i'm going to be stepping into a different role my my like professional dream is one day to, to run a company that's that's what i want to do and um i was lucky enough to get an opportunity with a consulting firm starting in november that i think will allow me to develop a skill set that'll that'll you know hopefully you know, put me on a path where that's uh potentially achievable um but yeah no, i love to actually working for the arrows um, and, and helping actually build the professional franchise. That was a tremendous experience. And, and I think for sports fans and athletes, it's, it's kind of a dream to like also see the business side of it, if, if business is of interest. So that was really cool. But, um, you know, I'm going to step away. I, I love rugby. I think, um, you know, potentially this job that I'm going to go out, I'll, I'll develop more skills that may be further down the line. I don't think that door is closed. Like if I wanted to get back into the game, but I'm lucky that there's all sorts of other things that, that interest me and, and I have passions in, in other industries and other areas. So I'm going to go learn a bit more about those and step away from the game and learn a little bit more about myself by doing it. So by doing so without the game as well, because it's been the better part of my life for 15 years and you almost have to, it's really central to my identity and who I am. And I think I'm kind of excited to figure out who I am without it. 
So I, I think you, you mentioned this, um, that the fact that for domestic players specifically, that because MLR is, is a short season, players are, in a sense, they have to figure it out. Um, and they have the opportunity to develop out away from rugby. And I think that is important. And I think that's also something that the academy structure overseas gets wrong. And I know today the way things are is more and more guys are being told that they have to go to university as part of that pathway. But at the end of the day, they're still in the academy structure from 14, 15. And yes, they may be going to school at the same time, but if all you do is, is rugby and you don't get that break, I think, I think the break in the off season that you sort of have with American sport is very important because it allows you to develop different interests just, just by itself. It allows you to be like, what am I going to do for four months? You know, I, at a certain point you can't sit on the beach and sit my ties for four months, five years, like for five (laughs) years in a row, as much as I would, if I could afford that, I would do that. But in general, especially for us, I think it allows professional athletes in, in North America the ability to reset and then develop new interests. And, and you see that a lot in other sports. Guys build companies away from the sport, right? So I think we'll see guys in MLR, maybe not build companies, but get different roles away from you know their full-time job as a rugby player and do something else. Um, just for three to four months at a time while they wait for, for training camp. Yeah. I'm to be honest, I think the balance is key. And I, it's in my career, at least when I've, whenever I've been balancing a couple of big interests, I actually play better because it helps you get away from the game and get that reset. You know, I love reading uh, biographies of players that I aspired to be like, and I don't know if you've had a chance to read Dan Carter's, who was my hero in rugby growing up. He talks about the 2007 World Cup, and he said for, for you know 18 months beforehand, he decided that he wouldn't drink any, he wouldn't have a beer after a game. He would be purely dedicated to rugby and really like not let himself do anything outside of that. And he talked about when we got to the World Cup, like you felt too tight, and that you know that balance in your life, having other things, whether it's family, a job, like other interests and skills, not only I think does it help you actually perform better during the during the season and in, in your games but i think it also then actually helps you get teed up for life after which is huge like you know one thing i've tried to talk about in our environment at the arrows you know a mentor once told me i always want to be living my life with my best days ahead of me and i think that is so important and that's how rugby players should focus on it like yes there's this great high you get to play in stadiums you get to do something you love and, and that you're passionate with with like a you know, peer group that that you love as well but be make sure that at the end of it, when it's all said and done, you know you have something to step into because you know not that there's not that there's not you know there's not too much fame and and you're not retiring on um, you know MLR money right now, but hopefully that that changes. But um, you know don't don't bank on that. You need skill sets. You need things that are employable on the back end. Um, in order to make that transition smooth. And, and, you know, there's all sorts of data that suggests people have all sorts of mental health issues and stuff when that transition doesn't go well, because as I mentioned, it is so core to your identity. So I think you need to be prepared for it. Um, and I think that's a, you know, it's, but with the setup we have here, there's no excuse for it. Like you, you should be able to develop those, 
those different skill sets and, and be, be better prepared for it on the, uh, the end of it. Um, well, man, I, I guess we're going to, you're going to be, you're going to transition to Balmy beach RFC ambassador. Is that, is that, that's, that's your, <laughs> that, that is your rugby identity for, for the next couple of years while you, uh, go back into uh, the college shirt life in an office somewhere. So, um, obviously always great to have a chance to chat with you and it's always high level. Um, I have to say, but, uh, <laughs> for the most part, gonna, gonna be missing you on the pitch next year. Cause, uh, you're always Thank a great, you. great person to watch and, and a great person to, to lead a team. I think in a sense, I mean, I know that the arrows are in a good place, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to lose such a, a good character leader as yourself. Um, externally, at least that's my opinion. But uh, I, I think leadership there will, will take care of itself. And, um, you know, they're one of the, the better teams in, in the league when it comes to off-field structure. And it's really, it's very, I would say, system-based. So sure. I don't think uh, it'll be a huge loss um, for for the team itself. I think it's a huge loss for um us uh, on the fan side, because I, I have to say, in addition to, you know, working in the sport, I am also a fan. So it is more of a huge loss there because you've you've got a lot of really great fans. I know Karen Gasparino up from who works for Edelhard. She's a big time Toronto Arrows um, supporter. Um, yeah, I, know, great. I know she's she's very sad to see you go. So but um, again, um, thanks for. I guess uh, a year and change uh, of major league rugby. And then um, two years, uh, two good years um, of playing for Canada. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, I'm kind of, I'm annoyed for you that you didn't get the chance this year. Cause uh, I think you earned it. And uh, you know, it was, it's, it's hard to see some, like you said, uh, players who are playing amateur rugby get selected ahead of you. So I understand like where that point of view comes from. And I, I think a lot of people were kind of mad for you, but um, again, thank you very much for your time. Yeah. Th thank you so much for having me on Aaron. And just, if I can just have the last word there, I think I totally agree with you. No is irreplaceable. And the leaders that we have in that locker room, they're going to you know take the arrows you know, uh, another step further, like we were trying to this year and, and hopefully win the whole thing. So I'm excited to, to watch it, but um, you know, thank you so much for, for having me on and, and being a big supporter and, and growing the game, uh, you know, through publications like this and, and the other work you do. So uh, thank you so much, man. And thank you for the kind words. Thanks for having me on. Enjoyed the chat. This has been Lineouts by Earful of Dirt. Connect with Earful of Dirt online. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Earful of Dirt. You can email us at earfulofdirt at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 720-600-2679. For Aaron, Dan, and Victor, I'm Corey. Thanks for listening.